Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello again. Today I'm continuing the theme on connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you know, one of the things that we just cannot avoid when we look at a subject like this is the parts of the Old Testament that depict God as some kind of bloodthirsty warrior. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why Andy Stanley, subject of one of my previous talks, wants so much to unhitch Christians from the Old Testament. It's certainly one of the reasons why the fairly well-known atheist Richard Dawkins has irreverently described God as follows. He writes that God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infocidal, genocidal, philocidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. Whew. Hardly able to speak those words, but that's what he wrote. Now, I don't have much time for Richard Dawkins' tortured logic and Norfrey's misguided faith in humanism. But you know what? I can't ignore the biblical grounds for his indictments. So, I want to consider just two of the very many troublesome passages in Scripture. Both of them, in this case, drawn from the Old Testament. The first is the Judges 21, verses 1 to 23, account of a mass murder, kidnapping, and sex trafficking. Yeah, see, the story goes as follows. Some of the men in the village of Gibeath, in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, raped and killed a concubine of a visiting Levite. So, warriors from the other tribes of Israel gathered and they decided to punish the offenders. But when they demanded that the offenders be released to them, the tribe of Benjamin refused to hand them over. Instead, they declared war on their fellow Israelites and massacred 25,000 of their warriors. The other tribes were so outraged that they swore an oath that in future they would not give any of their daughters in marriage to the men of the tribe of Benjamin. And they went ahead and they basically bumped off all but 600 men of that particular tribe. Now, it wasn't long for them to realize that this oath they had taken would eventually result in the extermination of one of the 12 tribes. If those 600 men could not marry an Israelite of some description and produce children, then that tribe would eventually cease to exist. So they gathered to discuss the problem. And all the cities of Israel sent representatives to this meeting, except one. Jabesh Gilead, and because of the fact that they weren't present, had scorned the meeting, the others decided to send soldiers to that city and kill all its men and its non-virgin women. Then they did that, and they took the 400 virgins that remained and proudly gave them to the men of Benjamin to have sex with, to euphemistically marry and to produce offspring. Now, you know, it's, that, that's bad enough in itself. But they committed 
this unjust and barbarous act in the name of the God of Israel. See, they met together in his name. They prayed to him. They offered sacrifices to him. And then they came up with their macabre solution, believing that God had willed it. True, there's nothing in the particular biblical record suggesting that God had actually spoken to them about this, but this was their obvious conclusion. And it's typical of several Old Testament accounts of what we would see as apparent divine evil. The second is the Numbers 15, 32-36 account, which I've called a sinister version of pick-up sticks. Nothing like that children's game that I'm referring to, of course. Here's how the story goes. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath. So those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and to Aaron and to the whole assembly, and they held him in custody because it wasn't clear to them what they should do with him. So then, let me tell you what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we have no idea why the man was violating the commandment to do work on the Sabbath. We don't know. Perhaps he was wanting to make a fire so he could cook his food and he'd been too sick to gather with the previous day. We just, we just don't know. However, what we do know is it seems that Moses inquired of God what to do and that he believed certainly that God had answered him that the poor man should be stoned to death. Now, what on earth, or shall I say in heaven's name, are we to do with this kind of thing? Is God really so petty and harsh and barbarous? Hmm. Perhaps he was setting an example, right? So, of what would happen to defiant Sabbath breakers. But, but hang on a second here. Just hang on a moment. Didn't Jesus Christ, God incarnate, later say, and I quote, If you had known the words, what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You'll read about that in Matthew 12, 7 to 8. He even made it clearer, by the way. He said, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27, 28. So, some theologians try to justify God's apparent Old Testament atrocities by claiming that he was righteous and judicial in ordering these slaughters and mayhem and stomach-wrenching barbarisms. And you know what? You know, these atrocities in the Old Testament include the slaughter of half a million Israelites, yes, half a million, at the hands of their fellow children of God, to Chronicles 13.17, they include the eradication of everyone, including children, and everything living in the city of Heshbon, Deuteronomy 2.32-35, and 42 children mauled by bears for daring to call a prophet Old Baldy, 2 Kings 2.23-24. Okay. When we encounter these incidents in Scripture, and we cannot fail to encounter them as we read through the Old Testament in particular, we can respond in one of at least three ways. I've identified three ways that we can respond. One, we can reason that God must have had a good reason for acting in this 
way, which frankly is no better than the pagan deities of the nations surrounding Israel, but we can reason that he must have had a good reason for doing that, some redemptive purpose, some purpose that would ultimately display his love and so on. Our second response could be, okay, we can accept these portrayals of God because they are, after all, in the infallible scriptures, and they must therefore be true depictions of at least aspects of God's nature. So we can add them to all the other aspects and, and round out our picture of God by including him as this bloodthirsty warrior king. Or thirdly, we can conclude that something else is going on here that we need to understand. Now those of you who have listened to me before or read my stuff know that I believe passionately that the scriptures are indeed inspired and fully trustworthy. But I also believe that when we read stuff like this, something else must be going on. Why? Why must something else be going on? Because, simply put, Jesus Christ presented a portrait of the Godhead that is radically at odds with these sort of portrayals. He spoke and lived and evidenced a God of grace and truth, and none of this darkness was in him. And we know that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, Hebrews 1.3. We know that he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. We know that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus Christ, Colossians 1.19. So, we have to ask the question, would Jesus say and do the things attributed to God in the problematic Old Testament passages? Would he? No, he would not. Therefore, something else must be going on here. Uh, by the way, there is plenty of evidence in the Old Testament itself that the God of Abram, Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, is good, loving and righteous. So, in the light of this weight of evidence as to his goodness, we must seriously interrogate the passages that appear to contradict this. There's a man called uh, Gregory Boyd, Dr. Gregory Boyd, and I think he's probably the latest uh, serious Christian scholar attempting to do justice, to wrestle with this problem. And he very recently wrote a two-volume work, 1,492 pages, in a book entitled The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. You can see summaries of what he says about his own book on, on YouTube and so on. Fortunately for us normal folks, he wrote a slim, uh, a slim version, a condensed version of this huge book, and it's called Cross Vision, subtitled How the Crucifixion of Jesus Makes Sense of Old Testament Violence. Now his main thesis is that the Old Testament characters, such as Moses and so on, were so influenced by the gods of the ancient Near East that they projected their characteristics onto the God of Israel. They were so much in the culture of their time. They were so much uh, immersed in, in people who worshipped their foreign gods, their pagan gods, by sacrificing to them and by lauding their violence and their barbarism, that they had the same kind of idea of the God of Israel. Now, Greg Boyd also believes that the scriptures are the result of a cooperation between selected men of God and God. 
and that any barbarism portrayed in the resulting scripture is the result of the human author's limited understanding of God's true nature. And he holds further that God allowed these misrepresentations of his character to stand in the sacred text because he is compassionate in accommodating to human frailty and wanted to communicate in the language and the framework of the day of the men of old. And I think because he wanted the Bible to be an accurate record of how people saw him and the world around them. So for Dr. Boyd, Jesus is the final revelation of God's character and nature. And so his disclosure, Jesus, he discloses the Godhead and that that disclosure trumps all others. In the main, other than some maybe some detailed issues, I agree with Dr. Boyd. And I've in fact written along similar lines several times in the past. Now, the fact that God revealed his true nature in and through Jesus Christ is very important to all of us. Firstly, decoding the Bible through the Jesus-centered lens is the only satisfactorily way I know of making sense of Old Testament blood and guts passages and the equally bemusing accounts in the New Testament, such as the killing of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, in Acts 5, verses 1 to 11. But it's also important in that it helps us realize that there is no darkness in God. No darkness at all. God is light, and in Him is no darkness. It helps us to realize that we can trust in His loving kindness towards us. We can trust Him. He does love us. And also, it helps us to love God for who He truly is, rather than fearing Him because of who others think He is. Such a Christocentric interpretation of Scripture also helps us to appreciate the entire Bible, old and new, as God-breathed and as reliable. Now, my daughter Corin is back this week to interrogate me, so here she is. Daddy! Hi there. The bloodthirsty warrior god of the Bible. This is a topic uh, that's been so interesting to me and what we're going to talk about today on good. Truth is the Word. I haven't heard your, your intro yet, so please just let me know if I covered anything that you have already spoken about. Okay. Um, but this is a topic that has that has sort of bewildered me on on and off throughout the my many years of living on this mortal plane. <laughs> you start off by giving two quite graphic accounts of massacres and slayings and killings and everything in God's name, right? And then you move on to say that then along came Jesus, who is this good, kind, anti-killing, war-death part of God. How, how do these two sides actually reconcile? Okay, so, so that's at the heart of this whole issue. Mm. The whole issue is too many attempts are made in, to try and reconcile, to try and say, well, you know, he's, God is really shown as this bloodthirsty character. And, and P.S., 
uh, some of the accounts that I didn't talk about are even worse than the ones I did record. Mm. You know, taking babies and bashing them against rocks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so how do we reconcile this? Because now, now we've got Jesus. And yeah, he wasn't always just gentle Jesus, meek in mind, but he was always, always the epitome of peaceableness, mm. anti-violent mm. uh, truth, honor. Well, it says in John's gospel that he is full of grace and truth. Yes. And, and that kind of sums him up. So how do we reconcile? And the answer is no, there is no reconciliation necessary yeah. because... The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, and the God of the New Testament is Jesus. Yeah, you, you, you say at the end of the post, towards the end, you say that God revealed his true nature in and through Jesus. Yes. But that, that baffles me, because then what was this other revealing of the killings? Okay, so... So a couple of things. One is, there are cases in the Old Testament that that one can quite easily identify. And the flood, I suppose that's the greatest mass extermination of all. Mm. Um, the flood, the, the reasons are given for us why that was done. Yeah. Okay. So in that case, what you had was you had the Nephilim, which were the fallen ones from angels, angels mm. that fell from heaven, who mm. mated with human women mm. and they produced giants the mm. giants of old but they weren't just physically giants they were intellectual giants as well access to arcane knowledge and all sorts of things of which Goliath I think was uh, one of the last he was one of the very last so mm. he, they were in the earth before the flood and they made they sort of tried again after the flood but were basically put down with Goliath being one of the very last mm. so they corrupted humanity to such an extent. And the scriptures tell us that. It says, you know, the, the whole of mankind has become absolutely irredeemably corrupt. Mm. Therefore, God had to exterminate them. Mm. But there was one family that hadn't become absolutely corrupt, so he saved them. So the flood is an evidence of his saving grace in the family of Noah. But it's just one family. Yes, because the the humanity, all of them, had become massively, massively corrupted at, at, at could, every but level. But you could say that that there is a situation now. No, that's not. First of all, you've got the the church in the world. You've got the Holy Spirit active in the world today. You've got you've got no ways a situation where you can say all of humanity is irredeemably corrupt. People are being redeemed daily. Weekly, okay, just, hourly. Just sometimes mm. feels like all of humanity is irredeemably well, corrupt. Well, it's a lot. Very few, I would say, would be irredeemably corrupt, but they are mm. basically corrupt in the majority. But it's a totally different scenario. So, yeah. so there are cases where we are told that God had to do something in mm. order to be able to uh, create again and bring into the world again, a loving mm. people who he could interact with, his children. Wipe the slate clean. Yeah. And the other incidents is, the, one is the f great story of one of the local tribes. And by the way, those the local nations were, I mean, talking about corrupt. I mean, these were guys who would take their newborn babies and throw them into the, into the burning mouth mm. of their statue, Moloch, etc. Mm. I mean, this was terrible stuff. Mm. 
And the Israelites wanted to pass through their territory and there was going to be a massive war. Mm. And God spoke and said, don't, I'll take you around by another way. And 400 years pass. Hmm. And when they encountered again, he says, now take them out totally. Yeah. But what's happened in the, in the interim, 400 years have passed, 400 years. And it tells us again in the scripture, because when they had first wanted to cross that territory, the iniquity of that nation had not yet reached its irredeemable quality. Huh. Okay. And so we know from other places like uh, Nineveh, for instance, that mm. God was sending prophets into those places regularly. And we also know that Nineveh being a case, that when the people heard and repented, he withheld his judgment from them. Mm. So there are, there are some instances in Scripture where you can say, well, okay, I'm pretty sure that God did do that and he had to do that. Mm. Not as a reflection of his bloodthirsty character, but actually in order that he might evidence and display his love. But the whole tone of the Old Testament, I mean, I know it's a huge generalization. The whole tone is very, uh, what I imagine you learn in Catholic school. You know, God's going to punish you for your sins. Uh, okay, so now here comes a really important issue for me. So mm. just talk about it a bit. The First of all, the Old Testament is actually chock-a-block full of declarations of God's glory and His love and His kindness. Mm. There are, you know, there are thousands of passages which speak about the loving kindness of God, the righteousness mm. of God, uh, etc. Mm. But you do have these massacre stories, and you do have them attributed to God, and you do have the whole legal system. Mm. But then, counterbalanced against that, you have... Uh, Statements where God says things like, I, I actually detest all your blasted sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want mercy and righteousness, yeah. Yeah. not this nonsense. Yeah. So, this doctor, mm. Dr. Greg Boyd, has written this incredibly large book, 1492 pages. Mm. Uh, yeah, I didn't skim through that, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, where he sort of sets it out with all the research. But the bottom line, he says, this is what we're to remember. Those Old Testament passages were written originally to people thousands of years ago. Mm. And they were living in this culture where it was a pre-scientific culture, but they were also immersed in the, the, the traditions of the, na the nations around them, as I said earlier. Yeah. So, so now he's got to communicate with them in a way that they'll understand. Mm. So that was the first thing we need to understand. Se secondly, he, he accommodates their misunderstandings of his nature and, and character. So when, the, when, when Moses uh, says to his people, uh, God has said, then the, the only conclusion we can get to is that no, God didn't actually say that to Moses. Moses assumed this. And, and the one case that I actually set out in my talk makes this quite clear. They pray, they fast, they make sacrifices, they do all these things, and then Moses suddenly hops up and says, right, let's go and do this. He believes he's heard from God. Mm. So there are, there, are, there are cases, quite a lot of cases like that in the Scripture, and God allows that record to stand because he's accommodating to their lack of understanding of who he really is. And secondly, because he wants the Bible to be a true and accurate reflection of actually what the people did do. 
and what the people did say. By the way, and that's why the Bible for us is reliable, because it mm. tells it as it is, warts and all. Mm. It's not sugar-coated, but it's giving us a picture of what Moses, for instance, understood God to be. And Moses mm. appears to have a highly skewed understanding of, of God's nature and character. Mm. And that becomes so obvious later on when Jesus arrives on the scene, Mm. And he says things like, the Father and I are one. Mm. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Mm. These are Jesus' own words. So he's saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Mm. So one doesn't try and reconcile the two. One has to say, the revelation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ trumps all other supposed revelations in Scripture. And if, there, then, and if there's a contradiction, we need to then say, okay, um, there's got to be a reason. And the reason that Gregory Boyd comes up, which I essentially concur with, is that it's because the human authors, the recipients of, of the, those revelations in Old Testament times, are misunderstanding it and therefore recording it incorrectly. Well, they're recording it correctly, but they're recording a skewed understanding of what, what they believe so God has like said. The poor woman who turns into the pillar of salt, it could have been a volcanic eruption or something. Well, it could have been. I mean, there could have been many, many reasons and causes. You know, there could be a, a complexity of different causes. Mm. In some cases, when I talk about the earth opening up and swallowing it, it could have been mm. an earthquake. Yeah. It could have been also an allusion to the pagan myths in the, of the day, which said that there was a, the great monster underneath the earth who whose jaws sun, sometimes opened up and swallowed people whole. Wow. Yeah. So it could have been a skewed version of that coming through from mm. the pen of Moses, so to speak, or mm. one of the prophets. But the, the real issue for me is when we look at the revelation of God in and through Jesus, and it doesn't, and the things we read in the Old Testament don't seem to conform to that, then we should we should be saying, there's something wrong here. Mm. It's not trying to accommodate them and, and mm. reconcile them. And so many people do, for instance, uh, theologians often say, no, these show a side of God which is perfectly valid and we must put it together with the revelation through Jesus. So therefore, God, God is loving and kind, but he's also a brute. What, what I think I've sort of said to myself is God... Okay, this this sounds terrible now that I say it out loud, but God didn't quite get exactly what it was like being a human being until Jesus came along, and then He got it, and He understood the the trials and the everything that happens to you, and and He was sort of okay, I won't pillar of salt you this time. No, no, they can't be. Like, it, mm. You know, God for starters is the one who created us, created the entire <laughs> world. He knows the beginning from the end. He's infinitely yeah. wise and knowing. Yeah. So no, that can't be. It can't yeah. be. The fault's not on God's part. Yeah. If we if we attribute the fault to God, then we are basically saying God is inadequate. Mm. He's he's you know he's not really worthy of being worshipped. He actually looks a bit like me. Mm. We project ourselves onto him. No, and Jesus comes and says, No, no, God is perfect. And then John comes along after that, by the way, and in 1 John, chapter 1, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
So are you saying that, in a nutshell, the Old Testament prophets, a lot of them, got it wrong? They just happened to do something right, or God happened to work through them, but they hadn't done, you know, for example, um, God has ordered me to kill the thousands. He never did that. Yeah, I'm saying it, sometimes that's the, that's the undeniable conclusion. But first of all, it's it, it it's not the majority of things in the Old Testament. Mm. So there are some things where they got it absolutely right. They did hear God, and He had a perfectly good and loving reason for instructing it, which mm. then is actually evident in the scriptures themselves. The scriptures then don't remain silent on that. They tend to give us the clue to that. But in many cases, they believed God was instructing them to do something. And then they go off and do something, and God must have grieved terribly when he saw that Mm. happening. Yet the Bible is so true that it records that accurately. So, So we don't then have to jump to the illogical conclusion, oh, well, if they got it wrong, then the Bible is wrong. No, no. The Bible yeah. is actually telling it exactly as it is. Yeah. But something else is happening here. There's human people that are processing what they believe God is saying, not saying. Yeah. And, and there's plenty of examples of that. I mean, uh, right now there's an example of somebody in our nation who's calling um, a great meeting again of, of Christians and um, much respected, and I respect him too. And But the reason why he's doing it, he says, it, it seems to him as he reads the scriptures that God is speaking through, to him through some texts in, in the scripture. Yeah. On that basis, he's saying, God has told me to do this. Mm. So, so it's happening all the time, mm. uh, you know, with the best intentions of the world. But we, we are fallible, we are frail, mm. we are not omniscient, and, we're, mm. we, we, and we, we get it wrong. Yeah. But it actually gives me courage when I start to appreciate these things because then it makes me understand that the Bible actually is to be trusted and that the revelation of God through Jesus is all I actually need to understand his character and I can therefore know that he is loving and kind and good and righteous and judicious and all those good things. So when it says fear God, it feels like a hundred times in the Old Testament. No, well again, that's an easy translation problem. The, okay. the the word used fear is much better translated as revere. Uh, okay, well that makes more sense. You know, it's not fear as in tremble and wet your your brookies. Mm. Mm. It, it, it's revere him, honor him, treat mm. him with great respect. That's what it means. Mm. Okay, so obviously I I like ending with a hard. So how does this affect me? <laughs> yeah. um, but in I'm thinking about if I want to sit down and read the Bible and I'm not sure where to start, it's probably not going to be anywhere in the Old Testament, especially if I'm sitting down feeling distressed already. Yep. So how, through what eyes should I read the Old Testament or should am I doing the right thing by going straight to the New Testament? You yes. Know, how you, you, how do I... You mm. put your finger right on the button, girl, mm. because this is what I call Christocentricity, Jesus-centeredness. Okay. So where we've got to start is with Jesus. Mm. And the only way we can practically do that is to start with the Gospels. Mm. There we learn who he is, what he said, what he did. Mm. But then we also 
start to appreciate what he shows us of the nature and character of the triune Godhead. Mm. Then we read the rest of the New Testament to fill that out because people like Paul come along and explain it to us, you know. Mm. And John's gospel is also explanatory. It comes and yeah. uh, gives us the story and then says this is what it means. Yeah. Now, steeped in that, we've now got a set of Jesus spectacles on. Mm. Now we can read the Old Testament. And when we get to these terrible passages, these blood and gut step passages, we can say, but hang on, I already have a good understanding of who God is through Jesus. So therefore, okay. something else is happening here. Yeah. Instead of leaping off to the, oh, well then the, how can I keep my faith? Yeah. Uh, if yeah, this yeah. is God, uh, then then he's he, frankly he's like the devil, and there's no way I want anything to do with him. Or or the Bible must be wrong. How can I believe the Bible? We don't leap to those erroneous conclusions. Then if we're looking at it through Jesus spectacles, I think the conclusions aren't so much the devil as um, he's the strict lightning sort of in the sky with his rod figure in the Old Testament and then a more down-to-earth, hey man, no, kind of God in the New Testament. No. I think that's most people. Yeah, but I have to differ with that because the implications are far greater than that. Yeah. If you believe that God is quite happy with, and it's in his nature, to uh, instruct that babies be taken by the heels and bashed against rocks, mm. ripped from their mother's wombs, Mm. fed to their parents and these are some of the most horrific incidents in the in some of the prophets writings wow those were the threats if no the, wonder no wonder the flood had to happen yeah so now if if we perceive god as that we can't then just say oh well you know uh, he's pretty strict no mm. <laughs> i mean would you ever want a relationship with that kind of person yeah let alone with god that means we live in fear yeah and then our, our, we don't have faith, we have fear, and we're then driven by this fear-based religion. If we put a foot wrong, boy, boy, yeah. don't be surprised then if a lightning bolt takes my leg off. Yeah. And then he says, now, better listen to me now, otherwise your, your other one goes tomorrow. Yeah. No. Okay. No, from, that's, that's what the devil does, not what God mm. does. So it's really important that we have a Jesus-based concept of the character and the nature of God. And then go back and read the Old Testament once we've... Through, like, through, that, through that lens. Mm. And then it, it'll either make sense or we'll be able to say, well, I, I don't understand that. I'm quite happy to park it for now mm. because what I do understand is the clear revelation of God through Christ Jesus. Mm. Cool. Thanks, Daddy. Okay, well, I hope that helps. It's a hang of a big subject. But yeah, on my, on my posts, I've given sort of um, links through to videos of people like Greg Boyd, who explains it better than I can, and some of the research. And so if anybody wants to take it further, there's a, a lot of stuff available at the moment. It's, it's, or they can just write and ask. Yeah, but I'm, I'm pointing now to people uh, yeah. more able than I. He said, oh. <laughs> he said, cringingly humble. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made it a lot clearer for me, so thank And not in 700 pages or whatever it 1, was. 1,492. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, Thanks, then we'll Eddie. say goodbye, and we'll say goodbye to our listeners, if by this time there are any remaining. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you, Mr. One Listener. <laughs> Tell your friend. Okay, bye all. Speak to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is